Welcome to Spiritual Awakening Radio. My name is James Bean. Gospel of Thomas Spiritual Studies today. Readings from the Greek manuscript, the Oxyrhynchus manuscript of the Gospel of Thomas. Sayings 1 through 5, concentrating especially on saying 2, also saying 12, saying 17, and saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas. Today, some new reflections on the meaning of the Gospel of Thomas, its origins, who used it, where its source material actually comes from. Commentary on some key sayings, parallels between the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of the Hebrews, and in turn, Tatian's Syriac-Aramaic Gospel Harmony, also known as the Diatessaron. The Diatessaron is a Syriac-Aramaic gospel from the early centuries A.D. that represented a kind of mega-combining together of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel of the Hebrews, and perhaps some other Jewish Christian material, such as the gospel of the Ebionites. All of that material combined together into one mega-gospel, and it was in circulation for many centuries. At some point, there was a text composed called the Helion, the Saxon gospel. The Gnostic scholar Gilles Quispel has written about this. You know, he talked about this stuff 50 years ago, half a century ago. The Evidently, the author of the Helion, the Saxon gospel, had a copy of the Diatessaron, and made use of it when composing the Helion. So if you're reading Meister Eckhart or one of those Western medieval mystics and you come across a verse or two that sound a little bit like the Gospel of Thomas, it's probably not the case that Meister Eckhart had a copy of the Gospel of Thomas, but had indeed read the Saxon Gospel, the Helion, which was in turn influenced by the Diatessaron. You see, there is shared material between the Gospel of the Hebrews and the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, you might say, and today I do make the case, in fact, that the Gospel of Thomas, the compiler, the composer of the Gospel of Thomas, quotes from the Gospel of the Hebrews. And that's why those Thomasonian sayings turn up in the Diatessaron and in any uh, writing by an author influenced by the Diatessaron, including the author, the composer of the Helion, the Saxon Gospel. I also make use today of other apocryphal New Testament-type writings, as well as Syriac-Aramaic writings of these mystics of the East in the region of Mesopotamia, the region called by the scholar Bentley Layton, the school of St. Thomas. Eastern Christianity does not trace itself back to the Apostle Paul. Eastern Christianity traces itself back to the Apostle Thomas as its founding apostle. The school of St. Thomas, Eastern Christianity. Then eventually we'll turn this into a spiritual satsang discourse. Something for everyone, hopefully. Not just the intellectual or the historic, but also the mystical from the Syriac side of things and the teachings of Kripal Singh, 
a satsang discourse on becoming an initiate of the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, learning to rise above body consciousness, with thine eye becoming single and thy body being filled with light, seeing what the human eyes are not able to see, what fleshly material ears are not able to hear, what has never occurred to the human mind, what typically does not enter the heart of man. I've been called a, a lobbyist for the Gospel of Thomas. That goes back to a kind of friendly conversation by a uh, or with a program director of a radio station in in Canada. They were calling me the lobbyist for the Gospel of Thomas, which I thought was fair and uh, accurate. I've written a number of articles, done a number of radio programs over the years on the Gospel of Thomas, quoting the Gospel of Thomas, because it is a key text that describes some very essential spiritual principles. I'll delve into some of those today. I've done many podcasts on the Gospel of Thomas. There was a podcast on this channel back in 2016, originally created in 2016, on the spiritual message of the Gospel of Thomas in light of the Syriac East. And that was in turn based on a 2011 article that was published, my article published in Inner Tapestry magazine on the Gospel of Thomas. So this is something I've been exploring for a number of years, being a fan of the Gospel of Thomas as a contemplative gospel or mystic gospel. A more accurate title for the book would be The Wisdom of Yeshua, a collection of the sayings and parables of Jesus. And I believe the Gospel of Thomas presents Jesus as a spiritual master. The Gospel of Thomas provides key spiritual principles about how to enter, how to experience the present tense, kingdom of God or spiritual dimension, here and now in the living present, this living present moment. The following is from pages 219 and 220 of the book God's Library, the archaeology of the earliest Christian manuscripts by Brent Nonbri, published by Yale University Press. On the discovery, it's a book all about the discovery of biblical writings, ancient manuscripts, the earliest of manuscripts, as well as the discoveries of lost sayings of Jesus at Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, during the year 1897, made by Grenfell and Hunt. The quote contains a reference to two sayings of Jesus that represent the two earliest surviving Greek papyri preserving sayings of Jesus. One is from the Gospel of Matthew, and the other is from what we now know to be the Gospel of Thomas. Grenfell relates the story. On January 11th, we sallied forth at sunrise with some 70 workmen and set them to dig trenches through a mound near a large space covered with piles of limestone chips, which probably denotes the site of an ancient temple, though its walls have been all but entirely dug out for the sake of the stone. The choice provided a very fortunate one. Uh, rather, the choice proved to be a very fortunate one. 
For papyrus scraps at once began to come to light in considerable quantities. Later in the week, Mr. Hunt, in sorting the papyri found on the second day, noticed on a crumpled fragment written on both sides the Greek word for moat, which at once suggested to him the verse in the Gospels concerning the moat and the beam. A further examination showed that the passage in the papyrus really was the conclusion of the verse, Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye." Unquote. But that the rest of the papyrus differed considerably from the Gospels, and was in fact a leaf of a book containing a collection of the sayings of Christ, some of which apparently were new. The following day, Mr. Hunt identified another fragment as containing the first chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. The evidence both of the handwriting and of the dated papyri with which they were found makes it certain that both the logia, the sayings of Jesus, and the St. Matthew fragment were written not later than the 3rd century and that they are therefore a century older than the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. And that's a quote, a footnote attributes that quote to the oldest record of Christ's life, page 1027 through 1028. The logia or logia, these unknown sayings of Jesus from Oxyrhynchus would later be identified as the gospel according to Thomas. The discovery of early Christian writings older by a century than any then known, and of completely unknown sayings of Jesus that predated the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, was the fulfillment of a late Victorian dream. Upon their return to England, Grenfell and Hunt promptly published, they promptly published the Logia, the Sayings of Jesus, in an inexpensive pamphlet called Sayings of Our Lord, that sold briskly and helped to finance subsequent expeditions. Grenfell and Hunt spent the next five winters digging elsewhere in Egypt before returning to Oxyrhynchus in 1903. They excavated at Oxyrhynchus for the next four winters, amassing what is probably the world's largest collection of Greek papyri. What has survived of the earlier Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas can be accessed for free online. Greek Thomas can be found at gnosis.org, as well as, of course, the later Coptic Gospel of Thomas. Also, the site earlychristianwritings.com has a couple of great translations of this Greek, this very early shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with the earliest of manuscripts, this early Greek edition of Thomas. You'll find it there, too. Today on this program, this podcast on the Gospel of Thomas, I'll be sharing a reading from the Greek Oxyrhynchus Thomas from a book called Christian Oxyrhynchus, Texts, Documents, and Sources. It is a 760-page book with 
translations in English of some of this material, much of this oxyrhynchus material. Today I make the case that the Gospel of Thomas is not Gnostic. Though popular with Gnostics, well, the Gospel of John was popular with Gnostics as well. The first known commentary on the Gospel of John was written by a Gnostic. You know, John was popular with Gnostics, but we don't think of the Gospel of John as a Gnostic Gospel. And I don't think the Gospel of Thomas, especially in light of this earlier Greek edition of Thomas found with biblical manuscripts and letters from Christians to other Christians or bishops and abbots, you know, talking amongst themselves at a place called Oxyrhynchus, that doesn't seem like a Gnostic context for this earlier Greek edition of the Gospel of Thomas. So I don't think of the Gospel of Thomas as a, quote, Gnostic Gospel, but it is a Gospel originating with the Syriac St. Thomas branch of Christianity just north of Israel. The collector and arranger of the sayings of Jesus found in the Gospel of Thomas was someone from the Syriac St. Thomas branch of Christianity just north of Israel in that region of Mesopotamia, Syria, Persian Gulf, all the way over to Iraq and uh, Iran or Persia. The Diatessaron, as I mentioned, also known as Tatian's Gospel Harmony, was a Syriac Aramaic mega gospel that combined together the texts of several gospels into one Mark, Matthew, John, Luke, and the Gospel of the Hebrews, and perhaps some other things too from Jewish Christian, Hebrew Christian uh, sources like the Gospel of the Ebionites, once popular with the Jesus movement. As the author of the Gospel of Luke said at the beginning of his Gospel, by the time that the author of the Gospel of Luke had created his Gospel, many other Gospels had already been composed by others. And the word many seems like a lot more than just two or three, like Matthew and Mark. This is from Luke chapter 1, excerpted from Luke chapter 1 from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, or OJB. Since many Messianic Sepharim have attempted to compile a Sefer, a historical narrative about the momentous events that have been fulfilled among us, I thought it expedient, also having done an investigative research, accurately and carefully being engaged in research in every source and making a painstakingly thorough investigation of every aspect from the beginning to write for you and to arrange an orderly account, most noble Theophilus. And this is from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, using the Common English Bible, or CEB, just for clarity's sake. Many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Gospel of Q, the Q sayings gospel maybe amongst that, and the Gospel of the Hebrews perhaps in there too. 
amongst those several uh, uh, earlier uh, Gospels from the perspective of Luke, possibly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5 suggests that Paul had a copy of the Gospel of the Hebrews. And that's because he refers to the story, the account of the resurrected Christ appearing to James the Just, which is found in the Gospel of the Hebrews and is actually quoted by the church father, Jerome. Now, for Paul to know of that story found in the Gospel of the Hebrews, that would make the Gospel of the Hebrews one of the first Gospels, predating Luke and others. As the composition, the composition date of 1 Corinthians is around 50 AD or so. I mean, that's really early for the Apostle Paul to know of a book. You know, that puts it really far back into the first century, right? And some of that material from the Gospel of the Hebrews is also quoted in the Gospel of Thomas. I'm reaching now for a copy of something called The Complete Gospels, edited by Robert J. Miller, the third edition, which has all of this material from Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Thomas, Mary, James, various fragments of sayings, uh, Orphan Gospels, Edgerton, various Oxyrhynchus manuscripts, just all the stuff from the first three centuries A.D. And this is an interesting quote. If you are a reader of the Gospel of Thomas, it will sound very, very familiar to you. Those who seek should not stop until they find. When they find, they will marvel. When they marvel, they will rule. And when they rule, they will rest. That's a quote from, not the Gospel of Thomas, but from the Gospel of the Hebrews, as quoted by Clement of Alexandria. That's a quote from the Gospel of the Hebrews. The Gospel of Thomas, I'm using the Oxyrhynchus Greek edition of saying to, goes like this. Jesus said, Let him who seeks not cease until he finds, and when he finds, he shall wonder. Wondering, he shall reign, and reigning shall rest. Interesting, right? I believe there are other examples of the Gospel of Thomas accessing material from the Gospel of the Hebrews. The compiler of the Gospel of Thomas had access to Q and the Gospel of the Hebrews, a Jewish Christian Gospel of early date. Must be very early if Paul knew of it when he wrote 1 Corinthians. I believe both the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of Thomas have quoted verses from the Gospel of the Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 15.5 suggests Paul had a copy of the Gospel of the Hebrews. Unless he got the same story directly by hanging out with Paul in Jerusalem. But that's also pretty impressive, right? And that's also very early in date. Also taking us back to around 50 AD. So either way you look at it, it's a Gospel of the Hebrews story that dates back really early. Whether Paul gets it from the Gospel of the Hebrews he has as a scroll in his house, or if he learned of that story by hanging out with James the Just in Jerusalem during one of those few occasions when he actually paid a visit to him 
Either way, it dates back really early. The Gospel according to the Hebrews was quoted, as I mentioned, by Jerome and other early church fathers. I believe, and today I make the case for, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9 was also quoting more directly the Gospel of the Hebrews, an outright quote. Several of the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas connect directly with the original Jesus movement. The Ebionites, or Hebrew Christians, led by James the Just based in Jerusalem, saying 12, pays homage to James the Just being as being the first and the true direct spiritual successor of Yeshua, keeping the Sabbath as a Sabbath, or Shabbat as a true Shabbat, in saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas, saying 27. Exploring the mystery of saying 17, also quoted in 1 Corinthians 2.9, a passage, uh, you know, talking about what eye has not seen and what the ear has not heard. Biblical footnotes falsely attribute that to a passage from Isaiah because they don't do apocryphal or extra-canonical references in most Bible footnotes. So you don't hear about the Gospel of the Hebrews or Thomas or the book of First Enoch being quoted by Jude in uh, most of the Bibles because it's extra-canonical and therefore no longer of interest or concern. So they do not make such footnote references to extra-canonical sources. Uh, most of the time, there are some exceptions. The Berkeley Bible does that. But, yeah, most of the time, if there's a, a quote coming from an extra-biblical source, they don't share that information. They don't say, hey, that's a quote from First Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, here in the book of Jude. They don't say that. They omit that information. We know that the Gospel of the Hebrews and the sayings collection dubbed by scholars as Q for, for the uh, German word quella, meaning source gospel, source material that Matthew, Mark, and Luke quoted from. We know that these are the earliest sources for the sayings of Jesus. Q from the German word quella for source gospel and the Gospel of the Hebrews, which is also conceived of as being a collection of stories kind of similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke with stories. You know, going to Capernaum or hanging out in Galilee. It also contains sayings, uh, but is, is more of a story narrative type gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Q and the Gospel of the Hebrews represent some of the earliest material featuring sayings of Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul says it is written in 1 Corinthians 2.9 about what the eye has not seen, what the ear has not heard, you know, which also turns up, the parallel to that turns up in the Gospel of Thomas saying 17. I think that what's going on there, it's not Paul quoting the Gospel of Thomas. It's not the Gospel of Thomas quoting St. Paul. It's both of them quoting a saying of Jesus present in the Gospel of the Hebrews, not Isaiah. And I'll, I'll get into how, how that, that saying is attributed not to Isaiah, but Jesus in a number of early Christian sources. We'll do that on today's program. Now, 
a long time, a number of decades after the Gospel of Thomas was found at Oxyrhynchus, a part of the Gospel of Thomas was found at Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. Eventually, a complete edition was found in Coptic at Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt, near the village of Nag Hammadi. About a mile and a half away from what had been during the 4th century AD, a Pacomian monastery. So I pretty much go along with the standard view, the the James M. Robinson articulated view, that the books of the Nag Hammadi, including the Gospel of Thomas, were taken from a St. Pacomian monastery library, about a mile and a half away, put into a clay storage jar and buried near Nag Hammadi. And that eventually, of course, those were discovered and now called the Nag Hammadi Library, 50 books from the early days of Christianity, Gnostic Gospels, Christian material, a bit of Plato's Republic, a Pythagorean text known as the Sentences of Sextus, and some other stuff. A great sampler, you know, a great time capsule from the 4th century. So I pretty much go along with the orthodox view that those writings were taken by monks from the nearby library and stored there at that site near some caves where they hung out. There are some crosses, uh, some some Christian graffiti on the walls of those caves. So it was a, a, a cave area where monks would go for spiritual retreat, for prayer and meditation. And just outside the, the, the mouth of one of those caves was the discovery site of the Nag Hammadi Library. Now, the Greek edition of Thomas is older, is a better translation, and I wish more of these translators would be mindful uh, and inclusive of the Greek manuscripts of Thomas when making their translation so we don't have missing words, thank you very much, missing verses. You know, there's some extra stuff, and there's some extra material in the Greek Oxyrhynchus fragments or, you know, what we have of the Greek Thomas that has been preserved. There's more, it's a higher quality translation and there's some extra stuff in there. Now, that's also true of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There are some Greek versions of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that have more sayings that are omitted by some translators. You know, if you want a good edition of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, get the Karen King one, because she has all of the variants, you know, all of the material. So you get to read a couple more sayings of Mary in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the complete book published by uh, Karen King, you know. And, and I also highly recommend the Greek edition of the Gospel of Thomas for anyone who's a, a Thomas person you know, that studies the Gospel of Thomas. You'll notice a few more things. Nicer arrangement of certain verses, bringing a bit more clarity, higher quality translation, I think. I link the spiritual principles of the Gospel of Thomas to Syriac Christian mysticism and make use of later Syriac texts from various Syriac mystics of the same Thomasonian tradition to help clarify and expand upon teachings present in the Gospel of Thomas. Like today, I'm including some other Syriac texts when discussing the mystical teachings of the Gospel of Thomas, including the Book of Steps, John of Delyatha, Dionysus, John of Apamia, 
and the Peshitta, Syriac Aramaic edition of the New Testament. We've already covered Meister Eckhart and the Saxon Gospel, the Heliand. Uh, I think there are basically two reasons why some of those Western European mystics have Thomas-like sayings occasionally that you can find. There are a couple of good reasons for this. One, mystics are great at reinventing the same spiritual principles. You know, it's the human condition, right? People who are trying to find heaven invent the same techniques over and over again in different cultures. Mystics are great at extracting these principles back out of the ethers again. Uh, But also there's point number two, in this case, the Helian, the Saxon Gospel. The Gospel of the Saxons, Gospel of Thomas parallels due to the influence of the diatessaron on the compiler of the Saxon Gospel. The diatessaron, in turn, made use of the Gospel of the Hebrews. And as you'll see today, there are some parallels between the Gospel of the Hebrews, some material from, in fact, I believe, the Gospel of the Hebrews incorporated into the Gospel of Thomas, along with the Q material, shared also by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I have a growing collection of Syriac Aramaic writings from mystics and apocryphal sources from the 2nd century through the 8th century. You know, Egypt used to be my main zone of interest outside of India, but now that's shifted over to Mesopotamia the land of the Syriac mystics, the land of St. Thomas, with Gospels and Acts, including the Acts of Thomas and the Hem of the Pearl, the land of the Mandaeans, the Manichaeans, the Zoroastrians, and eventually the Sufis. That's become my zone of interest. I've been collecting a lot of writings. And in there you'll find many parallels with Thomas, as you'll see today. So I hope you'll stay tuned and uh, listen to this long podcast as we explore, as I expand upon, reflect upon the Gospel of Thomas and various sayings. Today on Spiritual Awakening Radio, a deep dive into the Gospel of Thomas spiritual studies, readings from Greek Thomas, sayings 1 through 5, especially saying 2, also saying 12. We'll delve into saying 17 as well as saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of the Hebrews' connection to the Gospel of Thomas. First up, saying 17, the mystery of saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas saying 17 and its parallel in 1 Corinthians 2.9. There is a saying, there are different versions of it, cropping up in different languages, different documents, used by various sects or denominations, here and there around the Roman Empire, around the Mediterranean, that talk about seeing what the human eye normally cannot see what human hearing normally isn't able to hear and what normally doesn't occur to human beings doesn't normally occur to the human mind how privileged are your eyes because they see and your ears because 
They hear. I swear to you, many prophets and righteous ones have longed to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear. That's a saying attributed to Jesus. It's from the Q Gospel, the Source Gospel, evidently used, quoted by Matthew, as well as quoted by Luke from the New Testament. The following is a reading from something called the Testament of Our Lord, translated into English from the Syriac. It's not an early Syriac gospel, but as you'll see, it says some pretty interesting things about this, what the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard axiom of the mystic tradition of Eastern Christianity. Let the shepherd know the mysteries of all nature. After I have prayed to the Father, as you know and see, I am taken up, says Jesus. Therefore it is right that the shepherd should speak the teaching of the initiation into the mysteries, so that they may know of whom in the holy things they are partaking. And at the end, after this, let him say thus, as then we also have taken refuge in him and have learnt that it is in him alone to give. Let us beg from him those things which he said he would give us, which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man. This next quote comes from a book with almost the same title, The Testament of the Lord in Galilee. This saying is also attributed to Jesus in this apocryphal gospel of early Christianity. His power will be given to them, which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, and they will rejoice in my kingdom. Unquote. This is from something called the Apocryphal Gospel of John, a different book, not the regular Gospel of John. And this is also a saying attributed to Jesus. The rest of you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, whose delights no ear has heard described, which no eye has seen, and which has not appeared in the human heart." Unquote. This is saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas. Yeshua says, What your own eyes cannot see, your human ears do not hear, your physical hands cannot touch, and what is inconceivable to the human mind, that I will give to you. Gospel of Thomas saying 17 attributed once again to Jesus with that Thomasonian what your hands cannot touch you know part that fits in if you've if you've been uh, acquainted with Thomas and his uh, desire to physically touch the resurrected Christ in order to believe that physical hands touching part seems very Thomasonian here and then in the New Testament the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9 quotes something as well. It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared 
for those who love him, unquote. So very similar, right? Not identical in wording. So Paul here is probably not directly quoting the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is most definitely not quoting 1 Corinthians 2.9. But they're both quoting something that's very similar, right? This is from the Peshitta translation, the Aramaic Syriac edition of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, the eye has not seen what God has prepared for those that love him. The ear has not heard it, nor has it penetrated the human heart. Unquote. That's the Syriac Aramaic version of that saying, preserved in an ancient manuscript of the New Testament known as the Peshitta, from once again that Syriac, Syrian, Mesopotamian region associated with the Apostle Thomas and Eastern Christianity. Another way of translating that. Now, most footnotes of New Testaments, most biblical footnotes, attribute that quote to the Old Testament, Isaiah 64.4, which seems kind of odd, you know, when, when you see these versions all attributing the saying to Jesus in one way or another, except for the Paul quote in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't attribute it to anyone in particular. But he does say, it is written. He is quoting a text, a scripture from somewhere. Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 2.9, saying, it is written. And most of your standard biblical footnotes will say, it's a quote from Isaiah 64.4. But wait a minute, let's check that out. This is actually from the New International Version of Isaiah 64.4. Since ancient times, no one has heard. No ear has perceived, no eye has seen, any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So that's a little bit further removed. I mean, there's some foundation of that axiom built into that. It is a kind of foundational saying of wisdom. And one might imagine someone coming along later and using part of that to craft the more Thomasonian-type saying that we just heard. But it's not a word-for-word translation, is it? It doesn't really fit what Paul was quoting in 1 Corinthians 2.9 when he said it was something written. And it doesn't quite square with the Gospel of Thomas reading either. I believe, actually what this is, how to explain the parallel here between saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas and 1 Corinthians 2.9 is that both are quoting a saying of Jesus from the Gospel of the Hebrews. The Apostle Paul, in the same book of 1 Corinthians, later on in chapter 15, verse 5, mentions that the Apostle James saw a vision of the resurrected Christ. 
James swore he would not eat bread from the hour that he drank the cup of the Lord till he should see him rising again from the dead, unquote. That's a quote from the Gospel of the Hebrews, found in the writings of Jerome, also known as Hieronymus, I believe, who really was very influenced by the Jewish Christian writings associated with the Ebionites, the Gospel of the Hebrews, and the Gospel of the Ebionites. He seemed to incorporate both the Paul tradition and the James Ebionite Jewish Christian tradition together, you know. He seemed to really advocate vegetarianism, and it's as if he gave equal weight to the Gospel of the Hebrews and uh, the other writings, like them all. And that made him, by default, a vegetarian. Uh, but he also liked Paul and liked Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as well. So all, all together as one, kind of melding the two different traditions together. That particular reference from is from the Gospel of the Hebrews and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.5 mentions that about James uh, fasting and, and uh, was uh, a someone who saw the resurrected Christ. So I believe that it's not so far-fetched to suggest that 1 Corinthians 2.9 is a direct quote from the Gospel of the Hebrews. Now, of course, those uh, publishers of various Bibles that have that footnote that, no, 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 it's actually a quote from Isaiah 64.4, even though it doesn't quite fit, doesn't quite uh, make sense. Uh, they're saying that as if uh, citing that it's from Isaiah means nothing to see here, folks. Certainly this is not a quote from an extra-canonical source. Go back to sleep, everybody. You know, they do not want to uh, say this quote came from an extra-canonical source. So they try and keep everything bound to the canon of recognized scripture, which means either from the Old or from the New Testament, by any means necessary. In the book of Jude in the New Testament is an actual quote from the book of First Enoch, but you won't find that mentioned too often in the footnotes of most Bibles for that same reason, for that same orthodox motive of not recognizing extra-canonical texts. So I actually believe that Paul was quoting from the Gospel of the Hebrews in 1 Corinthians 2.9, and that the Gospel of Thomas was also quoting from the Gospel of the Hebrews, and you get different wording there, coming from different uh, time periods, different languages. You know, the saying can morph a little bit from place to place, from time to time, from language to language. But I think that's the best explanation of both 1 Corinthians 2.9 and saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas. Initiation into the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven. Back to the spiritual side of things here. The following is from Dionysus, Mystical Theology, another classic from the Syriac tradition, delving into the question of being an initiate of the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven. (music) 
guide us to that topmost height of mystic lore which exceeds light and more than exceeds knowledge where the simple absolute and unchangeable mysteries of heavenly truth lie hidden in the dazzling obscurity of the secret silence outshining all brilliance with all intensity of their darkness and surcharging our blinded intellects with the utterly impalpable and invisible fairness of glories which exceed all beauty. Such be my prayer, and you, dear Timothy, I counsel that in the earnest exercise of mystic contemplation, you leave the senses and the activities of the intellect and all things that the senses or the intellect can perceive and all things in this world of nothingness or in that world of being and can contain for by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself and all things thou shalt in pureness cast all things aside and be released from all and so shalt be led upwards to the ray of that divine darkness which exceedeth all existence. These things thou must not disclose to any of the uninitiated, by whom I mean those who cling to the objects of human thought, and imagine there is no super-essential reality beyond, and fancy that they know by human understanding him that has made the darkness his secret place. And if the divine initiation is beyond such men as these, what can be said of others yet more incapable thereof, who describe the transcendent cause of all things by qualities drawn from the lowest order of being? Dionysus, mystical theology, the Syriac tradition, a Syriac spiritual classic, speaking of initiation into things beyond this world and mystic contemplation. The Master said, What your own eyes cannot see, your human ears do not hear, your physical hands cannot touch, and what is inconceivable to the human mind, that I will give you. That's a quote from Gospel of Thomas, saying 17, from the Lynn Bauman translation, known as the Gospel of Thomas, Wisdom of the Twin. The following is from Swami Vyasanand's Kindle e-book called The Inward Journey of the Soul. When we close our eyes and do not see any objects, this does not mean that there exists nothing that can be seen. In other words, the shapeless darkness is also an object. Unfortunately, we cannot even see pure darkness because we are constantly thinking about the images of the world. And, it's, and instead of seeing darkness, we see the imaginary sights projected on the screen of the inner mind without practicing the meditation of focusing in the darkness. It is not possible to see the subtle light that lies deep within. The experience of divine light in the meditation brings joy, and the progress there becomes rapid. Consequently, one's faith and conviction become stronger. 
A quote from Swami Vyasanand in The Inward Journey of the Soul, a Sant Mat publication associated with Swami Vyasanand that helps bring out the meaning here of both saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas and the earlier reading from Dionysus from the Syriac tradition about seeing spiritually with spiritual eyes, the eyes of the soul, hearing spiritually with the ears of the soul, perceiving beyond what the human mind normally is able to imagine, to conceive of. This is the initiation into the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, described in saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas. This initiation was carried out not by an ancient text or scroll or scripture, but it was done by a living teacher in relation to his disciples. He was their spiritual teacher who guided them. He guided them into the way of inner seeing and the way of inner hearing, transcending the world of the five senses, going into the spiritual beyond, the kingdom of the heavens, This was done by a living master with his living students, not by reading a scripture like the Gospel of Thomas or some passage. This is the work of living masters who have disciples, who have students. And this is where the initiation takes place between master and disciple. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear, as the saying goes. next reading comes from the Oxyrhynchus edition of the Gospel of Thomas. I'm grabbing a copy of this very wonderful collection called Christian Oxyrhynchus. Texts, documents, and sources. All of this material from Oxyrhynchus. A huge book. How many pages is this thing? 756 pages. <laughs> One small sliver of it is... Uh, where you find the Greek Oxyrhynchus manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas translated. This is verses 1 through 5, sayings 1 through 5 of the Greek Gospel of Thomas. These are the hidden words which the living Jesus spoke and Judas Thomas recorded. He said, Whoever discovers the meaning of these words will not taste death. Jesus says, let him who seeks not pause until he finds, and when he finds he will be amazed, and being amazed he will rule, and having ruled he will rest. If those who draw upon you say to you, behold, the kingdom is in heaven, the birds of heaven will be there before you. And if they say that it is under the earth, the fish of the sea will go there before you. The kingdom of God is in you, and it is outside you. Whoever knows himself will find it, and when you know yourselves, you will be the sons of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you are in poverty, and are poverty." 
man full of days will not hesitate to question a child of seven days about the place of life, and he will live. For many that are first will be last, and the last will be first, and they will arrive at the place of life. Jesus says, Know what is before your face, and what is hidden from you will be revealed to you, for there is nothing that is hidden that will not be made visible, and nothing that is buried that will not be raised up. That's from saying five. And rather ironic, too, because this very book was buried and was raised. You know, this very passage about things being buried and being raised itself had been buried and was raised, was discovered at an archaeological site known as Oxyrhynchus in Upper Egypt in the year 1897. Some pages of the Greek Oxyrhynchus manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas that had been buried, was raised and now published in many languages of the world. Saying two of the Gospel of Thomas. I'm grabbing a different book here. This one is called The Complete Gospels, Robert J. Miller, third edition. It features a reading not from the Gospel of Thomas, but in this case, the Gospel of the Hebrews. But it corresponds to saying two of the Gospel of Thomas. Those who seek should not stop until they find. Those who seek should not stop until they find. When they find, they will marvel. When they marvel, they will rule. And when they rule, they will rest. That is a passage from the Gospel of the Hebrews, a Jewish Christian gospel that I believe the Apostle Paul read, was acquainted with, and quoted from, and that the Gospel of Thomas uh, quoted in verse 2 of the Gospel of Thomas, seeking and finding, not stopping until one finds. After that coming, that come, after the finding comes marveling or being astonished, being caught up in wonder. After that is ruling or ruling over the all. And the final stage is rest, as in spiritual rest. I'm reaching for a copy, a couple of other copies actually here, of that saying from the Gospel of Thomas. This one is a book called Unlocking the Secrets of the Gospel of Thomas by Charles W. Hedrick, who was one of the original Nag Hammadi scholars and really knows his stuff. Saying, too, from the Coptic translation, Seekers should not abandon their search before they make an unsettling discovery, 
completely amazing them. They will then become rulers over everything. That's a pretty radically different translation, isn't it? And this one is from the Gospel of Thomas in light of early Jewish, Christian, and Islamic esoteric trajectories by Samuel Zinner. This is an amazing book on Kabbalah and the Gospel of Thomas, mysticism, and the Book of Thomas. At the end, he includes his own translation of the Gospel of Thomas, and here's his version of saying two of the Gospel of Thomas, being mindful of the Greek, combining together the Coptic as well as the Greek. Like what you'd find in the New Testament most of the time when you have multiple manuscripts, uh, the translator will make use of all of the available manuscripts to make the best possible translation, which is how you're supposed to do it. And I wish more of the Thomas translators would. Uh, He does a a fairly good job of that here. This is saying two of the Gospel of Thomas found in the Gospel of Thomas in light of early Jewish, Christian, and Islamic esoteric trajectories by Samuel Zinner. One who seeks, let them not cease seeking until they find. And when they find, they will be troubled. And when they have been troubled they will be amazed. And when they have been amazed, they will reign. And when they have reigned, they will rest. Unquote. That's the whole thing based on the Greek and the Coptic. I believe what we see here are different stages of the spiritual search, the spiritual journey of the spiritual warrior or disciple or initiate of the mysteries. The spiritual seeker starts off on a search. They are seeking. And they do not quit until they find. So stage number two, after seeking, is finding. Isn't it great that some people can get from being in seeking mode all of the time into the realm of actually finding something? Good for you, seekers who are finding. After the stage of finding, the third stage is being astonished, being caught up in wonder, as some translations might put it. And I will elaborate on that in a moment. The next stage is ruling over the all, or reigning. I believe this has to do with the subtle bodies that the soul and the physical body are associated with. Becoming a spiritual king uh, over your own self, knowing yourself, know thyself. And that means knowing not only your physical body and the thoughts of your brain, your mind, but exploring the subtle bodies of the spiritual realms, the heavenly realms and spiritual realms. So I think it means simply that one becomes an inhabitant of one's true self and those subtle bodies and planes or regions, heavenly realms associated with those subtle bodies and the self, ruling over the the all, the cosmos, one's personal inner space 
the cosmos within. And the final stage is entering into rest, as in spiritual rest or heavenly rest, a kind of code word for the pleroma or the fullness or the highest of heavens. These are, I believe, that's how I interpret them anyway, uh, in saying two of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of the Hebrews, is that these are stages of the spiritual journey, seeking, finding, being astonished, ruling over the all, and entering into rest. You know, there is a seeking phase, a finding phase, being astonished. There's a troubled phase. Some of tra- some translations have a, a phase of uh, or stage of being troubled, uh, an, an adjustment, the death of the old, the birth of the new, and a kind of struggle to rule over oneself or reigning over the all, and then, of course, entering into rest. Being caught up in wonder, being astonished. This is a reading from St. Isaac the Syrian's Spiritual Works. Spiritual Works is translated by the late Mary Hansberry from Syriac, Aramaic into English. By stillness of the body and ceasing from this world, solitaries imagine the true stillness and the withdrawal from nature which will occur at the end of the corporeal world. By means of the mind, the solitaries are united with the world of the spirit. By means of meditation, they are involved in the expanse above. This is from John of Dalyatha, another Syriac mystic. Look at God within yourself, how God is light. For his nature is a glorious, many-splendored light. He manifests the light of his nature to those who love him in all the worlds. Being caught up in wonder, being astonished, is a theme of Syriac Christian mysticism. One becomes astonished when they see the uncreated light of the Godhead. Then their prayer ceases. The Master has entered their temple, and it's just a matter of contemplating the light of the Master. No need to pray, no need to sing hymns, no need to do anything other than be caught up in wonder and astonishment at the manifestation of the uncreated light. The following is from John of Apamia, from the Prayers of the Mystics section of the book The Syriac, Fathers on Prayer and the Spiritual Life, translated from the original Syriac Aramaic by Sebastian Brock. What wonders has your love affected? When someone is still alive, he has left this world. Though his bodily condition remains with the world's bodily condition, Yet his spirit has been raised up towards you, so that for a period of time he knows not where he is. He is where he knows not, being totally raptured and drawn towards you, 
writings of Joseph the Visionary also talk about being caught up in wonder and astonishment at these visions of the inner light and the new world, the kingdom of the heavens within, experienced by solitaries and mystics. We now turn to saying number 27 of the Gospel of Thomas. If you do not fast as regards the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not observe the Sabbath as a Sabbath, you will not see the Father. That's from the Coptic edition of Thomas. This is from the Greek. We are lucky that the Oxyrhynchus Greek manuscript includes saying 27. Unless you fast to the world, you shall in no way find the kingdom of God. And unless you sabotage the Sabbath, you shall not see the Father. A most intriguing saying, isn't it? Fasting, but it's not necessarily referring to fasting from food, but fasting from the world. And it refers to the Sabbath, but keeping the Sabbath in a true sort of way. This fits in so well with previous statements about the Gospel of Thomas having access to the Gospel of the Hebrews, a text of the Jesus movement, the Ebionites, early Christianity, because they were keepers of the Sabbath, the seventh day Saturday Sabbath from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. They were observers of the seventh day Sabbath day, a day of rest, spiritual rest, physical rest. And so this once again speaks of the Gospel of Thomas as having access to the Gospel of the Hebrews, like saying two of the Gospel of Thomas, really is a quote from the Gospel of the Hebrews. And so here we are again with something that sounds very Jewish Christian about keeping the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath. A reading from the Book of Steps, the Syriac Liber Grandium. On fasting to the world, or fasting from the world, this first one comes from page 153. If a person remains in that uprightness of the ancients, yet does not leave the earth as the apostles left it, and fasted to the whole world, he will not be able to receive the paraclete, or the spirit, the whole truth will not be revealed to him, nor will he be able to hear the voice of God like the prophets. Footnote 38 says, Gospel of Thomas saying 27, like what we just read about fasting from the world. 
And this is from page 328 of the Book of Steps, the Syriac Book of Steps, a 4th century text. Therefore, whoever surpasses all these evil things and empties himself and fasts these kinds of fasts of which I have spoken above, fasts to the world and is able to pray and keep the commandments of our Lord. Unquote. Footnote 31. See Gospel of Thomas saying 27. So that's nice to see a Thomasonian theme turn up in another Syriac text. More commentary on saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas. This is a version of saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas from the Gnostic Bible, the Willis Barnstone Marvin Meyer translation. If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not observe the Shabbat as Shabbat, you will not see the Father. That's an interesting, more Jewish-flavored translation, which is the case of that one, the Gnostic Bible one. Hebrews, the, from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews 4.9, the Tree of Life translation, so there remains a Shabbat rest for the people of God, the international version of that same verse from Hebrews 4.9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Some commentary from the online translation of the Gospel of Thomas. One person says, fasting to the world must mean withdrawal from a bodily or secular outlook. It is an abstention from the world that involves becoming a solitary Marvin Meyer commenting on this verse, fasting from the world means abstaining from the material things that the world has to offer. Keeping the Sabbath a Sabbath seems to imply that one should rest in a truly significant way and separate from worldly concerns, separate oneself from worldly concerns. Thus, Macarius of Syria is cited as making the same sort of statement, quote, for the soul that is considered worthy from the shameful and foul reflections keeps the Sabbath a true Sabbath and rests a true rest. To all the souls that obey and come, he gives rest from these impure reflections the souls keeping the Sabbath a true Sabbath. More comments from the Gospel of Thomas website. A degree of withdrawal from the world provides the perspective to realize your true place in reality. Meditation on God, a true Sabbath, is necessary to understanding a part of the nature of God. 
be in the world, another comment, be in the world, but not of the world. The world is a classroom. Do not let the things of the world rule you. Observe the Sabbath, that is, follow the instructions of your teacher. Another comment. Yes, I think here what is meant is meditation. Time for contemplation. If you do not have time for meditation, you will not see. Interesting comments from the Gospel of Thomas website on saying 27. We have both a reference to a very Jewish Christian concept of keeping the Saturday Sabbath, which fits in well with the theory that the Gospel of Thomas compiler had access to the Gospel of the Hebrews. And at the same time, there is a spiritual, mystical, or contemplative dimension to Sabbath, as in spiritual or heavenly rest. So you might be on a Saturday spending some time in meditation, having a true Sabbath, a true rest, a true abstaining from the world of the five senses, resting from the world, quite literally, the world of the five senses, the physical plane, and exploring the kingdom of the heavens, or entering into spiritual rest. Meister Eckhart said, If the soul is to see God, then it must see no temporal thing. For as long as the soul is conscious of time or space or of an idea, it cannot know God. So meditation is the ultimate Sabbath, an inner Sabbath of spiritual rest, abstaining, fasting from the world, the world of the five senses, and entering into a spiritual, contemplative rest. Meister Eckhart. Some commentary from one of my articles. Even as the Hubble Space Telescope had to be placed above the turbulence and distortion of Earth's atmosphere, in order to see clearly into the cosmos, so too the mystic needs to rise above body consciousness and mind to know that other realm we also are part of as spiritual beings. The awareness or attention of the soul, surat, as it's known in the East, must become untethered and free from the temporal world of the five senses, mental images and memories during meditation practice in order to experience that other realm of spirit that we inhabit. Not many are willing to take the time to do this and enter into the silence and stillness beyond the physical state, the dream state, and mental states. But if we do, we will be still and know that God is God, which is a reference to Psalm 46, verse 10, or meditation in the Hebrew Scriptures, be still and know that I am God. By the way, since we mentioned here Meister Eckhart, I shared a passage from Meister Eckhart, there are Meister Eckhart Gospel of Thomas parallels 
But how can this be? The Gospel of Thomas was lost long ago and didn't turn up again until 1897, and the full text in 1945. Well, there's a text called the Heliand, the Saxon Gospel, the Gospel of the Saxons. And the compiler of the Gospel of the Saxons had access to something called Tatian's Gospel Harmony, the Diatessaron, in an unredacted form, an unmessed with form. And so that Diatessaron contains some material that is also in the Gospel of Thomas, because both the Gospel of Thomas and Tatian, the compiler of the Diatessaron, the Gospel Harmony, had access to not only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the case of uh, Tatian, but also the Gospel of the Hebrews. The compiler of the Gospel of Thomas had access to Q and the Gospel of the Hebrews. And so I don't believe Meister Eckhart is quoting the Gospel of Thomas anywhere in his writings. There are some parallel passages, but I think those can be best explained by Meister Eckhart being aware of the Helian, the Saxon Gospel, and it has some material derived from Tatian's Gospel Harmony, and uh, some of that material from Tatian's Gospel Harmony has some parallels with Thomas. So it seems like Meister Eckhart might have quoted the Gospel of Thomas a couple of times, but no, it's the Helian, the Saxon Gospel, had access to Tatian's Gospel Harmony, which made use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Gospel of the Hebrews, and Thomas also made use of the Gospel of the Hebrews, and that's why it seems to us like Meister Eckhart might have had access to Thomas. He did not but was influenced by the Helian a little bit, and there's some uh, Thomasonian parallels uh, from that that uh, came to that particular book by way of Tatian's Gospel Harmony, another Syriac text from long ago, the Diatessaron, it's known as. Today on Spiritual Awakening Radio, the Gospel of Thomas, Spiritual Studies, readings from Greek Thomas, Sayings 1 through 5, an emphasis on saying 2, also saying 12, saying 17, and saying 27. Now for the saying 12 part. Gospel of Thomas, saying 12. The students said to Yeshua, We know you will leave us. Who will be our leader? Yeshua said to them, Wherever you are, seek out Yaakov the just. For his sake heaven and earth came into being. That's once again the Marvin Meyer, Willis Barnstone, Aramaic-flavored translation of the Gospel of Thomas, which once again takes us to the world of the Gospel of the Hebrews, 
the Jewish Christian Ebionite world. And I have in front of me a copy of Unlocking the Secrets of the Gospel According to Thomas, the Charles Hedrick book, all about this book of Thomas. And he has his own translation, as well as commentary on the whole book, a wonderful book. Saying 12, the Hedrick translation. The disciples asked Jesus, We know you are going away from us. Who will be our leader then? Jesus replied, When that happens, you will go to James the Just. For his sake, heaven and earth came into being. I actually have a podcast on that part of this saying, for whose sake heaven and earth came into being. You know, that seems like some sort of Jewish axiom of wisdom, and indeed it is. You'll find it uh, mentioned by Baal Shem Tov and other saints of Kabbalah, whose sake, by whose sake heaven and earth came into being. Some commentary from earlychristianwritings.com, the Thomas section. Robert M. Grant says, This exaltation of James is characteristic of Jewish Christian and Nessene tradition. It may be derived from, you guessed it, the Gospel of the Hebrews. It may be derived from the Gospel of the Hebrews. Unquote. Robert M. Grant F. F. Bruce writes, This saying originated in a Jewish Christian setting where James the Just, Jesus' brother, was regarded as the natural leader of Jesus' disciples after Jesus' departure. James was actually leader of the Jerusalem church for 15 to 20 years until his death in 62 A.D. His memory was revered and enhanced by the legendary embellishments. By by his uh, memory was revered and enhanced by legendary embellishments. Here, a high estimate is placed on his person. In Jewish thought, the world was created for the sake of the Torah. It says in the Assumption of Moses one two, although in one rabbinical utterance, in one rabbinical utterance, it says. Every single person is obliged to say, the world was created for my sake. So that is an axiom of wisdom. You know, the soul is a precious thing in the cosmos. You can go a lot, many, many light years before you'll find someone like a human being along the western spiral arm of the Milky Way or elsewhere in the cosmos. So, what a special creature the human being is. What a wondrous being in a vast cosmos of many million upon millions of light years. The world was created for my sake, for whose sake heaven and earth came to be. Robert Price writes, So to be called the pillar, quote-unquote, a reference from Paul in the New Testament, So to be called the pillar indicates quite an exalted status. We can see the same sort of godlike veneration reflected in Thomas saying 12. Wherever you come from, 
refers to the obligation of missionary apostles to check in with and report to James in Jerusalem, another measure of his importance. A quote from Robert Price from the book Deconstructing Jesus, page 53. Robert Price has the Bible Geek podcast and is a fun podcast to listen to. I usually try and catch it when he comes out with one, usually once or twice a month, you know, exploring questions like uh, these uh, readings from Gospel of Thomas or any uh, number of topics. The Church of James the Just, the Ebionites. If you'd like to learn more about this original Jesus movement that was led after Christ by his brother James, there is a great book on the subject, one of the few on the planet you can acquire uh, that will actually delve into where the Jesus movement fits into Judaism, the relationship between the Jesus movement and the John the Baptist group, and the earlier Essene branch of Judaism. There is a book by Keith Akers, A-K-E-R-S, called Disciples, that is the best one on this subject, the best book covering that period in history of the Jesus movement and how it interfaced with Judaism, how it fits right into the history. Uh, It's a most unusual and most accurate and wonderful book on the Jesus movement, Disciples by Keith Akers. I thought I would mention that today. Saying 12, once again, on that Jewish Christian theme, as if the Gospel of the Hebrews is a text that the compiler of the Gospel of Thomas had access to. I will give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard. A saying attributed to Jesus, not Isaiah, in many early Christian texts. Something the Master does, not a scripture reading from the Gospel of Thomas or some other holy book, but a living teacher brings their students, their disciples, into the experience of inner spiritual seeing and inner spiritual hearing. An initiation into the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. The following is a reading from Kripal Singh, excerpted from various writings of Sant Kripal Singh. Everyone has got two eyes. They have been working ever since birth. All throughout life, we have been working at the level of the two eyes. About 80% of all perceptions that are received from outside come through the eyes. Those who work only at the level of the two eyes receive either good impressions or bad impressions. Good impressions will react as good actions. Bad impressions will result in bad actions. The very impressions that are embedded in our heart will overflow. It is a very superficial life that we are living. The Masters tell us there is also another eye 
called variously the third eye, the single eye, or the Shiv Netra. Unless you open that third eye, which can be opened only while in the human form, the man body, you are nowhere. It is the eye of the soul, not of the intellect, nor the outgoing faculties. We are ensouled bodies, conscious entities working through mind and outgoing faculties. That inner eye is opened when our soul, the outward expression of which is called attention, is withdrawn to the seat of the soul in the body, which is at the back of the two eyes. The attention is now working at the level of the eyes through the mind and outgoing faculties. We are identified with the body, and we have forgotten ourselves. Unless that very attention is withdrawn from outside and just extricated above the outgoing faculties which end at the level of the eyes, we cannot know who we truly are. At the time of death, you come up to this point. Therefore, it is said that those who are initiated into the mysteries of the beyond, their soul has the same experience of leaving the body and the outgoing faculties as it has at the time of death. That's actually a quote from from Plotinus. That's actually a quote from Western Greek philosophy of, of long ago. That eye opens when the attention is withdrawn from outside and then dragged up from the level of the outgoing faculties to the seat of the soul in the body, which is at the back of the two eyes. That is the place where man leaves the body at the time of death. Kabir has said, just direct your attention to the seat above the outgoing faculties, unquote. When your attention reaches that point, your inner eye opens. The inner eye is within all. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light, unquote. A saying of Jesus from Matthew. It also has a parallel in the Gospel of Thomas. If one is divided, one will be filled with darkness. If one is whole, one will be full of light. Kripal Singh, If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. You know what that means? It is a demonstration, a proof, that when the third eye opens, you see the light of God within you. The greatness of a true master lies in the fact that he has opened his inner eye and can also make others see. Our master used to say, and this is referring to Hazur Baba Sawan saying, Well, what is the use of giving the five names, five mantras, or any outward thing? That even a little girl spinning uh, a wheel can tell you, unquote. The outward methods of performing a ritual anybody can do with a little training. But rising above body consciousness and opening the single eye, only a competent person can do. The master will give you a sitting, and after that you will see some light. The more accurately you follow his instructions, the more light you will see. Even a blind man has got the third eye. 
On my first tour to the West in 1955, I went to Los Angeles. During the meditation hour in the morning, a blind doctor was there, and he was given a sitting, and he saw light. Masters give the eye to the blind man. In the eyes of the masters, we are all blind. They see that our third eye is not open. Kabir said, I see all are blind. Who is not blind? He who sees the light of God within him, whose third eye is open. One should take the help of somebody whose inner eye is open and who is competent to open the inner eye of others. If you meet a master, he gives you this experience, how to tap inside, how to withdraw from outside, enter within the laboratory of the man-body, Kripal Singh's term for the human form. He gives you an illustrative experience and you testify that it is so. When do you find it? When you are given that first sitting at initiation. Before that, we are blind. Who is a blind man? Masters define it. Those who have no eye, those who have no eyes on the forehead, they are not considered blind. Blind are they who have eyes on the outside body, but the inner eye is closed. When masters come, you will find in the history of all masters, they used to give eyes. Well, these are the eyes they used to give. Before going to them, you were blind, not seeing that light of God. Your eyes were sealed. He breaks the seals, and you begin to see light. When you return, you are an eyed man. You see. When you close your eyes now, you see darkness within. And after that initiation, whenever you sit, you find light within. It is a vast difference. When you come to him, you are deaf. He breaks the seals upon your ears, and you begin to hear the sweet symphonies of the spheres. How blessed is it to have a living master who is competent to give you this experience to start with. That's Sant Kripal Singh, speaking of being initiated by a living master. Again, not a book, not a past master, but a living teacher a disciple, a living disciple is initiated by a living master into the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, taught how to know themselves, to know thyself, to go within, to access the third eye center, and discover the light that is within, and the music of the spheres that can be contemplated in meditation as well. They see and they hear. I will give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no hand has felt, and what has never occurred to the human mind. Gospel of Thomas. Saying 17. You're hearing Spiritual Awakening Radio. My name is James Bean. Today's program is titled Gospel of Thomas, Spiritual Studies. Readings from Greek Thomas, sayings 1 through 5, concentrating on saying 2. Also saying 12, saying 17, 
and saying 27 of the Gospel of Thomas. Some new reflections and meditations based on these passages along with related texts. As I mentioned, for a great book on early Christianity, Keith Akers has authored a book called Disciples, which I can recommend. For a book on the Gospel of Thomas and Kabbalah, or Jewish mysticism, there is a book by Samuel Zinner called The Gospel of Thomas in Light of Early Jewish, Christian, and Islamic Esoteric Trajectories. I certainly recommend that one. And in conclusion, I want to share a couple of things on the more poetic side of things, and then another version of Saying 17 of the Gospel of Thomas will conclude today's program. The following is a reading from the Book of the Odes, known to most people as the Odes of Solomon, an apocryphal text that represents a pseudopographically retitled and therefore misfiled apocryphal book. It's a collection of early Christian hymns, and at some point someone came along and combined it with another book that really is an Old Testament apocryphal writing known as the Psalms of Solomon, thus rebranding the Book of the Odes as the Odes of Solomon. So when people see that title, they go, ah, some Old Testament apocryphal writing, and aren't too concerned about it, when in reality it represents the first known collection of early Christian hymns from the late 1st century or early 2nd century A.D. at the crossroads of Jewish Christianity, Essenism, and Gnosticism. A more accurate title would be the first known collection of hymns or psalms from early Christianity preserved in Syriac, Aramaic, Coptic, and Greek. Ode 12 sounds almost like it was composed by the same folks behind the Gospel of John. And and indeed, it may well be that that's where it's from, Antioch, Syria, in the late first century. I'm using the Lodki translation, which has a more Gnostic flavor. Excerpts from Ode 12 of the Book of the Odes, misfiled and misplaced, named Odes of Solomon. The truth, the word, or logos and the aeons, or cosmic worlds. The Most High gave the word to his aeons. For the swiftness of the word is indescribable, and like its narration, so are its swiftness and sharpness. And its course is limitless, for it is the light and the dawning of thought. And the aeons, or the worlds, spoke to one another by the word. And they were goaded by the word, and knew him who had made them. Because they were in harmony. Because the mouth of the Most High spoke to them. For the dwelling place of the word is man, and its truth is love. 
The following is from The Pilgrimage of James, An Odyssey of Inner Space by George Ornsby Jones. The master finished speaking and fell silent for a while. I felt the import of his words penetrate my entire being. I pledged myself to explore the universe of love, that universe that transcends time, space, and causality. It is a universe which needs no spaceship for its conquest. It has riches undreamt of in the outer physical universe. The physical universe is a place of awe-inspiring beauty, and the mind of man is naturally inclined to plumb the wonders of its creation. But this outer universe is only the material robe of the Supreme Lord, who is all love. God has upheld his entire creation. God has upheld his entire creation with the power of love. And the very soul of man is infused with this power. I have sojourned in the physical world for eons, and I have known the three states of slumber, dream, and wakefulness. Now through the grace of a living master, I would attain the state of superconsciousness. I would be shown how to reassert my own true nature and thus walk upon the highway of love, the radiant way of return to my true home. And finally, from the Gospel of Thomas, saying 17, from the Samuel Zinner book, The Gospel of Thomas, I will give you what eye has not seen, what has not been heard, and what hand has not touched, and what has not entered the human mind. <laughs> 